If you're watching online, I want to send my greetings. Kiko and Joan, we miss you. We look forward to all uh, our RGC friends and members who aren't able to gather in person. We look forward to the time when we can get back together. If you're here for the first time this morning, my name's Mark. I get to serve as one of the elders here, and it's my privilege to bring <coughs> excuse me, the sermon this morning. We are this morning beginning a new series in the letters of John. John the Apostle wrote three letters, and um, we're going to be looking at those three letters through the fall and a little bit into the, uh, uh, after the first of the year as well, because we're going to take a break for an Advent series around Christmas time. That'll be great. This morning, the passage is the sort of the prologue, the introduction to uh, the letter of 1 John, and that's 1 John 1, 1 to 4, and Amy Cecil is going to be our reader. So Amy, thank you. Let's pray. Oh God, we have just heard your words to us. And there is in those words the intention that we have fellowship with you. I pray that the experience of this sermon would be an experience of fellowship with you. And I pray that it would lead where this passage ends to joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by telling you a story from John Bunyan's famous story, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is retold in this wonderful book called Dangerous Journey. We had uh, many times, oh, by the way, um, after the meeting, there'll be an intervention. Bonnie and the kids will be meeting together with Vince to remind them that he actually still is their father. So if you'd like to join in on that, that'll be taking place right here. Could someone text the kids and make sure they're all here to remind them you still are dad? So speaking of kids, our children, who are still our children, um, <laughs> and their parents, we used to read, we had many uh, pleasant times reading this wonderful book together. And so I want to uh, just tell you about chapter seven, which is the story about Doubting Castle. So the story is about Christian. Christian is this pilgrim <clears throat> making his way along the King's Highway on his way to the celestial city, to, to heaven. <clears throat> and for this part of the journey, he's got this friend hopeful with him. So as they're traveling along the highway, they see this little opening in the, the fence there and, and they decide that they're tired, their, their feet are sore, and so they're going to take a little shortcut. And as they take that shortcut, well, you can probably guess what happens, and maybe you've taken shortcuts like this too. The shortcut doesn't turn out so well. They get lost. They end up in the woods. They end up at night, and it gets dark, and then there's a huge storm. And when they wake up in the morning, they're captured by a giant named Despair, and they're taken to this 
prison that's called Doubting Castle. And so Doubting Castle is a terrible place. They were hungry. There was nothing to eat. They were thirsty. There was no water. They were lonely. There was no one else there. And to top it off, then this giant is just beating them mercilessly and he's sort of taunting them and even actually urging them to give up hope and take their own lives. As they grow weaker and weaker, when it seems all is lost, Christian remembers that he has something in his pocket. It's a key and the key is called promise. And so he takes the key out, weak, tired as he is, and he puts the key in this old rusty lock and it's hard, but he gets it to finally turn a little bit. And as, as he gets the, the, the lock to turn and the door starts to swing open, the giant hears them and he comes racing after them and they just barely make their escape from the giant despair and their exit from Doubting Castle. And they're able to make their way to the king's highway and get back on their journey again. If you were here last week and you heard the wonderful sermon from Jeremy McLean, and if you weren't, I want to encourage you to go back and, and listen to or watch that. Jeremy preached to us and reminded us that life's road can be hard. And we need to know what awaits us at the end of the road. We also need to know how to navigate through the challenges between here and the end of the road. Between here and the end of the road, life can be hard and we're going to have trouble. And sometimes that trouble comes in the form of doubts. Do you know, even the most mature Christian, even the most sincere Christians can sometimes find themselves in Doubting Castle. I've been there. Some of you are probably there today. Some of you have been there. Doubting Castle is not a fun place to be, is it? It's lonely. You feel isolated. It's scary. You may feel in times of darkness and doubt like that, you may feel like there's nobody else that understands. You may feel there's no one else that's ever experienced what you're experiencing. You may feel like there's no one who can even relate to you. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, that's me, I'm in that place, I'm in Doubting Castle right now. And if you're not in Doubting Castle right now, well, you will be sooner or later, and you surely have friends who either are there now or will be there now, because doubts are a normal part of the Christian life. We don't need to be ashamed of our doubts. We don't need to shy away from our doubts, and they won't go away by ignoring them. We want to be the kind of church where it's easy to talk about our doubts. We want to be the kind of church where we can help people who are in Doubting Castle to get out of Doubting Castle and make progress on the King's Highway. Do you have doubts about Christianity? Do you have doubts about whether you're a Christian, whether God accepts you or not? You know, doubts can arise from many places. Doubts can arise just from the difficulties of living in a non-Christian, or in our case, post-Christian culture. You're so out of step sometimes with what's going on with your neighbors or coworkers or fellow students or what's going on in the culture that you can feel like, am I crazy? Am I, don't, do, 
How can I be so different than everybody else? Sometimes doubts can arise not from sort of outside in the culture. Sometimes doubts arise from church. Sometimes Christians don't act like Christians. Sometimes churches look more like the world than like God's kingdom. And when you're not sure, when you're not sure who to believe or what to believe, where can you turn? Well, these letters from John are a great place to bring your doubts, your questions, your disappointments. Let me give you a quick tour of these letters because you need to understand the setting, the situation of these letters to be able to benefit from the content that's there. So we're going to do a little background first and then we're going to zero in on these first four verses. So let's just ask the question, why were these letters written? Now the author doesn't provide his name, but he does call himself at the beginning of the second and third letters, he calls himself the elder. And he was also clearly, we'll see in our passage today, an eyewitness to the person and ministry of Jesus. His writing style and his vocabulary are very similar to the Gospel of John. And we have good reason to believe that the author is John, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, John and his brother James. He was one of Jesus's 12 apostles, and he was a prolific author. He not only authored the Gospel of John, which is probably written just before these letters. He also wrote these three letters, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. A lot of our New Testament was written by John. He wasn't just a writer, though. He was a pastor. He was a shepherd. He cared for Christians, and he had a sort of a flock of a number of churches in what is now Western Turkey that he was responsible for in some way or interacting with and, and caring for. You might uh, recognize the geography. We've been studying uh, 2 Corinthians. The, the, that, that church in Corinth is over at the sort of the, the southern part of what's now Greece and across the Aegean Sea, directly across from there, is this region where John was working with churches in Ephesus and Laodicea and Colossae. You may recognize these names from other parts of the New Testament. What we have here in 1 John seems to be sort of a sermon. It's not a traditional letter. It doesn't have the traditional greeting and, and closing, but um, it, it's a sermon, it would seem, to, to these churches. 2 John is written to the elect lady, which I take to be sort of the, uh, a symbolic for a church. And then 3 John is written to a guy whose name is Gaius. Now, the situation that calls forth these letters will greatly assist us in understanding them. And you can learn a lot about the situation of the letters by reading these letters the same way we were reading 2 Corinthians. See, there's things going on in the letter that, that are calling forth this letter, and so you have to kind of do some reading between the lines, some mirror reading is sometimes called, to, to get the idea of what's going on there. So the situation... In, in these churches is actually very similar to the situation in Corinth, and that is this. There were these false teachers that had come into these churches and had caused a lot of trouble in the churches. Listen to what John has to say in chapter 2, verse 26. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There were these deceivers that were influencing them. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits 
to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. These spirits are people, these false prophets that are, that are influencing the churches. Now, what happened in, in these churches was those false teachers and probably some of their followers left the churches. He says that here in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Different Jesus, different gospel, different version of Christianity. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So, you know what we're looking at here? It's a first century church split. They were in the church. A bunch of these people left the church. Now, in Corinth, when these false teachers were in the church, if you were here for that series, you may recall the effect of all that false teaching. Remember what it did to the church? It made them boastful and arrogant. In these churches, it had the complete opposite effect. Instead of making them arrogant, it leaves them with all kinds of doubts, with uncertainty. They've lost their confidence. And, and if you've ever been a part of, of a separating of Christians of a church split, you may have had some of this experience. It's like, if you're still there and they all left, well, what do they know that I don't know? What do they see that I, I don't see? Am I, am I crazy? Like, how can I be sure of, of who's right here? So John is writing as a, as a pastor to try to help expose the lies of these deceivers and to restore the confidence of this church, these churches, these believers. So what he's going to do here is he's going to circle around themes. John isn't sort of a linear writer. He, he sort of writes in circular fashion. So you're going to find there are themes that come up over and over and over. He's going to give... These themes, they're sometimes called tests that, that are going to help determine and discern what genuine Christians are like. And he's telling this to these people because he believes they are genuine Christians and he wants them to have that confidence that they are. So he's going to give tests for how to live, moral tests, who they love, social and relational tests, what they believe, doctrinal test. These things are going to come into view, and he's going to also remind them of the work of the Holy Spirit, this anointing that he'll talk about, so they can be confident that they're being led and taught by the Spirit. He, he gives us the goal of the letter at the end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 13. Here's what he says. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. That's the key word here, that you may know that you have eternal life. They may have it, but have lost confidence that it's true. So he's trying to reassure them. So this is a letter. I want you to think about this. This letter is a five-chapter answer to the question, how can I be sure? How can I be sure about Christianity? How can I be sure that I am a Christian? It's a letter to bring assurance and confidence to believers and to introduce unbelievers to what it means to be a Christian. So wherever you find yourself today, there's something here for all of us. And these first four verses get us started with the most important answer to this question, how can I be sure about Christianity? Listen to verses 1 and 2 once more. That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. How can we have confidence? How can we be sure? Well, he offers sort of two aspects to confidence in this little passage. One is an objective confidence. It's a confidence based on facts, historical truths. And that fact is the fact of the incarnation. The incarnation. The, the manifest ex introduction of God into the world in a human body. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. That's the incarnation. What he's doing here is instructive to us. The core of Christianity is Jesus Christ. No Christ, no Christianity. The starting point isn't religion or your faith. It's Jesus. Listen to how John explains this. He, he kind of does this. It's a little hard to follow, isn't it? He, he, it's a little bit of a riddle. You have to decode when he says that which was from the beginning. What's he talking about? And then he says which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon. What's this which? Who's he, who's he talking about here? What's in view here? Well, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, God who became one of us. And he gives us three facts. First, he says that which was from the beginning, okay? So he's starting at the beginning. Now, it's possible to understand this beginning as the beginning of John, the apostle's experience with Jesus, and some interpreters understand it that way. I think that's a reasonable explanation, but I think there's a better understanding. When he says that which was from the beginning, if you're familiar with the Bible, that's going to resonate with you. There, there's going to be some, some echoes of, of, of other things. That which was from the beginning sounds like the very first sentence in the book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, what's being communicated to us there is this. The eternal God who has no beginning brought the universe into existence and he did it, we'll read in chapter 1 of Genesis, by words, let there be light, and there was. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then, when John writes his gospel, he begins with these words. In the beginning, okay, he's paralleling Genesis 1, but now he's going to put a twist on it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By his word, he created the heavens and the earth, and it turns out the word is a person, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, the Son of God taking on a human body. So what he's telling us at the beginning of his gospel is that when the heavens and the earth were created, the word was already there. In the beginning, the Son of God was already there because he's eternal. He's fully God. And now he tells us that which was from the beginning, that which is eternal, that which 
is the means by which creation came into being, that one, something spectacular, something miraculous, something utterly unexpected happened to. What is it? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we ha have heard, seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched with our hands. Can you see what happens here? He moves from creation to incarnation. The miraculous moment when the Son of God became a human being like us and then he called disciples to come be with him. Come follow me on life's road. And John did. Listen, think about this. We're reading a letter from a guy who knew Jesus so directly. He was an eyewitness. He didn't just hear about Jesus. It wasn't just a rumor. It wasn't just a dream. No, he heard him teach. He saw him heal. He was there when he died. He touched him after his resurrection. He had breakfast with him after he rose from the dead. Do you wonder whether Jesus really lived, really is who he says he is? John is saying to you, to us, I was there. I was an eyewitness. I knew him personally. The early church knew these eyewitness accounts would be vital for future people like us. So they, they ensured that these accounts of these eyewitnesses who saw with their eyes, heard with their ears, touched with their hands, that these got preserved and are called our New Testament so that generation after generation after generation could pass down this not made-up ideas, not dreams, not just something, that a fiction story that somebody made up. No, these are verifiable, historically accurate eyewitness accounts. That's how we know. How do you know that the Pentagon was really hit by a plane 20 years ago if you weren't there? How do you know? Maybe it's all a hoax. Maybe it's all made up. How do you know? Well, it's not that hard here and now because there's people all over our city who can say, I was there. I was there. You can find eyewitnesses. What happens when those eyewitnesses die? Well, if they've preserved verifiable, accurate accounts of what happened, then those can get passed on from generation to generation. And just because something happened a long time ago doesn't mean it didn't really happen. Whether it's 20 years ago or 2,000 years ago, historical facts are still historical facts. And the fact is, Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again. And John says, I was there. Let me tell you about him. That life was made manifest. And he says something fascinating about Jesus. He says he is the word of life and the life was made manifest and, and we're proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John tells us that Jesus is life. The word of life, eternal life. What's eternal life? If you hang around church, you might hear this phrase eternal life. What, what is it? It's, it's not just life that goes on for a really long time. It's not just life that never 
ends. It's more than that. Listen to what he's saying here. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's not saying Jesus came and gave eternal life. What's he saying? Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying Jesus came as eternal life. The eternal life of God became a person. What would the life of God? See, the God that we serve isn't a fake God, isn't an idol. The God that we serve isn't a creation of someone's mind. The God that we serve is the living God, the creator and maker of heaven and earth. What would happen if that the life that is that God, that God life became a human being? Well, it would look like Jesus because Jesus is eternal life. He tells us that in chapter 5. Jesus doesn't just give eternal life. He is eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. See that? He is eternal life. Think about this. This is wonderful. Put this together. Christianity is built on the reality that the eternal Son of God, the Word of life who is eternal life, was made manifest, became visible, came to be among us, born of the Virgin Mary. And people like John saw him, knew him, and John is telling you and me about objective, historically verifiable facts. Jesus lived and died and rose again. He's saying, I was there for all of it. This one, who is eternal life, died on a cross as the propitiation for our sins. If you don't know what that means, be here in two weeks and Justin will explain it from chapter 2. But think about this. Eternal life died on a cross? How can that be? It can't. Can't kill eternal life, can you? So Jesus rises from the dead and he lives. And now all who believe in this Jesus receive eternal life by becoming united with the one who is eternal life. If you're in Doubting Castle, here's Here's hope, here's bedrock, here's confidence. It's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Search this out. Read the Gospels. Find a trusted Christian friend and work through your doubts and your questions together. They are not to be shied away from. God welcomes people who bring their doubts to him. And it starts with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Second place to receive confidence is a subjective confidence. It's an experiential confidence. It's called fellowship. The apostles proclaimed this message about Jesus and what happened? What was their intention? Well, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. Notice the we here. I think he's speaking on behalf of the other eyewitnesses. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that... There's a design. There's an intention. What is it? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This proclamation of the news about Jesus leads to fellowship. Now, this letter was written probably around the year maybe A.D. 90. Sixty or so years after Jesus died and rose again. 
As the apostles, those eyewitnesses, have proclaimed the risen Christ, what's happened? People have heard. And a wider and wider circle of believers have entered into fellowship with them because people keep hearing and repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Christ and then fellowship expands. It starts in Jerusalem and it reaches all the way here to Western Asia and all the way to Rome and it's going to go beyond that. It starts with Jewish people and by this time it's reaching many ethnic groups and you know what? It's reached all the way to us. Think about this. I was thinking about this this week. I first heard the gospel, best I can remember, the first person to really explain the gospel to me was my friend Anthony. But he didn't make it up. He heard it from his friend Ryan, who was on the track team. Ryan didn't make it up. He heard it in Central Peninsula Church. But they didn't, they didn't make it up. They, they were a church plant from Peninsula Bible Church. Well, but they didn't make up this gospel. They got it from somebody else who got it from somebody else who got it from somebody else who got it from John or Peter or Matthew, or Paul. And this proclamation of Christ leads to fellowship. First, it leads to fellowship with the apostles. There's a sense in which we have this fellowship with John through his proclamation of Christ that we're receiving today. What is this fellowship that we're talking about here? What is this this, this connection that we have, that this word fellowship embodies. You may know the Greek word koinonia is the word behind this word fellowship. Koinonia means a shared life. It means life together, the title of our series. The title of our series comes right here from this verse, that we may have fellowship, that we ha may have life together. J.I. Packer, in his book God's Words, puts it this way. He says, Christian fellowship is sharing with our fellow believers the things that God has made known to us about himself, sharing with us, sharing with fellow believers the things that God has made known to us about himself in hope that we may thus help them to know him better and so enrich their fellowship with him. So we share with one another the things that God has made known. It brings us into fellowship. There's this back and forth that we experience with each other, but there's this vertical component helps us to have fellowship with God. It enhances our fellowship with God. And so John is writing to these Christians so that they can have fellowship with him in Christ. And we have fellowship here and now, not only in, in, in some sense with these apostles, but in a very real sense with Christians who are alive here today. The communion of saints we talk about in the Apostles' Creed. All who call upon the name of the Lord. And that is the church with a capital C, but it's particularly localized and focused in our church, in our congregation. We talk about community, we talk about friendship, but fellowship is, is a little different. Fellowship is made possible by Jesus Christ. You can have friendship with lots of people, but you can only have this kind of fellowship through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brings us into a family, and there's a new family experience. Jesus Christ makes us into a building of living stones, all connected together, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a, a, a relationship that comes about in fellowship that's deeper and more abiding than friendship. 
It's a community that transcends time and reaches into the new age. Do you know what you're experiencing as we gather together for fellowship on the Lord's Day and in small group fellowship and in, in other ways? What you're experiencing there is something that when you die, it won't end. And when this age comes to an end, it won't end. That fellowship will transcend this age into the new heavens and the new earth. It's a priceless gift, something to be treasured. If you haven't come to know Jesus, oh, I long for you to know Jesus, and I long for you to know the joy of this fellowship that never ends with a new family and God as your Father. As we fellowship with one another, that fellowship is made possible by the vertical fellowship we have with God. Because eternal life isn't just something that God pulls off a shelf and hands to you. Eternal life is God the Son united with you. And so to have eternal life, think about this. If you know the storyline of the Bible, what a precious thing. Go back to Genesis 3. If you know the story, when Adam and Eve were tempted by the deceiver, believed his lies and rebelled against God, you know what was lost. They were separated from God. They were alienated from one another. And you know what happens when Jesus comes on the scene? He reverses that curse. And instead of separation from God, there's fellowship with God, union with God. Instead of death, there's no fear of death because in Christ we will live forever, endlessly with him. We will transcend this life, receive new bodies, and be with him in a new creation forever. And instead of alienation from one another, we are brought together into a new family. How can I be sure about Christianity? Fact number one, Jesus came to bring eternal life. John was there, proclaiming it to us. Just because it happened a long time ago doesn't mean it's not true and not verifiable. Second, when you receive eternal life through Jesus, you come into a new experience of relationship and fellowship with God and with his family. If you're in Doubting Castle this morning, I'm so glad you're here. Keep coming back. Hang in there. If you're struggling with doubts, if you're struggling with assurance, I want to encourage you to give yourself to this letter. Study it. Chew on it. Find a friend. Read over it together. Talk about it. Pray over it. Maybe this morning you're doing fine, but you have a friend in Doubting Castle. Friends don't let friends doubt alone. Right? We need one another. S sometimes when you're in Doubting Castle, it's hard to ask for help. You don't even know which way is up. You might feel like you're the only one there. It's always helpful when a, when a kind friend comes alongside. So I'm with you. And I'm with you for the long haul. Because you know, doubts don't typically go away in a minute or an hour or a day. They tend to linger. Sometimes getting out of Doubting Castle 
is a long, slow process, and sometimes right after you get out, you're right back in again. So brothers and sisters, we need to stick with one another for the whole journey, for the long haul. We want to bear one another's burdens, especially these burdens of doubts and uncertainties. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, those are facts. And this series can help your experience catch up with those facts.